Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Virologist Dr. Chris Smith is back with us from an embattled UK where the resurgence of COVID-19 has led to a renewal of the government's powers to impose emergency restrictions. Britain's official death toll is over 42,000, the highest in Europe. Hi, Chris. How are you? Embattled. Contemplating panic buying, bog roll, Shiraz, anything else I think might come in handy. Stop it. We're up to 7,000 cases a day-ish from a low point of um, 1,000-ish. And um, one in 500 people in the population now with this up from about one in 2,500. Uh, so it, it's on the march, but the, the curve has been flattened, we think. Looking at the response to the various measures that have been put in place in the last two or three weeks, it's stopped growing you mean so much. Sort of patch, the patchwork of restrictions that the government's imposed have been a good thing, you'll say. Yeah, that's right. So there's some general rules which are across the country, more stringent rules designed to work everywhere, and then some more strategic local rules in hotspot areas because what we're seeing is as you say patchwork good analogy because they're unlike march april when all this began where we had a generalized surge across the country and and it was everywhere at a high level now what we've got is a trend upwards everywhere that's certainly true but really big numbers in particular geographies and there are perhaps various reasons we could get into as to why those might be the case but what they're going for is rather than saying let's lock up the country and instead uh, we'll go for localized control where the outbreaks are worst and have general kind of guidelines people should try to follow a bit more stringent to keep a lid on the growth elsewhere around the country. So why do you think it is worse in the north of England for example? Well I think it's a range of reasons and it's interesting it mirrors what the flu does when the flu comes in winter every year it usually arrives up north and it makes its way down south. And there's probably a range of reasons why it tends to focus up north first. I mean, it's not, this is, this is not an exclusive thing, but it it tends to be the trend. And partly it gets colder sooner up north, and it rains more sooner up north. And therefore, what that's going to provoke is more people spending more time indoors more often, more quickly as we go into winter, which kind of helps probably to create the kind of incubatory conditions that help viruses to transmit. That, I think, is part of the equation here. But the other interesting thing is if you look at the areas where we've got these outbreaks, they tend to be areas of high population and high population density. They also tend to be areas of more deprivation, not exclusively so, but more so. And that, too, is probably a catalyst because you've got more people living closer together you've got more people who are doing the kinds of jobs where if the employer says well we're going to work from home 
you can't do that. You can't be a cleaner in an office and not go to the office. And of course, if you don't earn very much, you're probably not going to have your own car. So you're probably going to take public transport because otherwise you're going to have to go to work for most of the day just to pay for the transport cost of getting you to work. So there's a lot of decisions that people are taken out of people's hands that make them probably a bit more vulnerable in certain geographies. So that's part of it, although not exclusively so, as I say, because if you look at, say, northern Italy, Lombardy, where it all began in Italy in a huge way, that's a very rich area. We think there perhaps it was contact with with, um, China, uh, people coming and going, high population density, lots of people all in one area. It created a sort of catalyst and off it went a bit like London. What do we know about super spreaders? I haven't heard much talk of it of late, but earlier on it was the topic of some conversation. Well, the the definition of a super spreader, because this is not actually a specific medical thing, it has a variety of different definitions in different contexts and different situations, but a super spreader is, is someone who creates a lot of disease cases in whatever the situation is. And certainly we know of a lot of illnesses where it's punctuated by super spreading behaviour. You notice that there's a few individuals in a population that account for the vast majority of the cases. Now that might be for social reasons. Some people are very popular and they will be a super spreader because they have lots of friends. There will be other people who are super spreaders because their job dictates that they have lots of contacts with people. For instance, a politician would do a lot of lot of talking and a lot of meeting and greeting opportunities to spread viruses. People are obviously interested in this new coronavirus because they want to know who's giving it to whom and how often. And there is quite an interesting paper out this week actually in the journal Science by researchers at Princeton and they've lo- they've looked at big numbers. They've looked at to the best part of 600,000 people who were exposed to about 85,000 people with confirmed coronavirus. And a really interesting trend emerged when they followed this up because according to their data, 71% of their cases didn't give it to anybody. But just 8% of their cases accounted for nearly two-thirds of all of the transmissions, suggesting that some people do get really very infectious and they are very good at giving it to people, but the vast majority of people don't give it to very many people. And isn't it interesting as well that we now know that about two-thirds of cases of coronavirus infections don't have any symptoms. So one must wonder, therefore, is it the people who are the non-symptomatic ones who are also the poor spreaders and the more symptomatic ones are the better spreaders? That would kind of fit with what we know about viruses, but we don't know for sure yet. Two-thirds have no symptoms ever? Yes, a, a number of studies now in a number of countries have confirmed and the Office for National Statistics in the UK did their own sentinel study in this they went around just swabbing people who had no symptoms at all. They were just swabbing people at random and then looking to see who had the infection. And they found that two-thirds of their hits, people who had the infection and had no symptoms, two-thirds of them. And in, in the vast majority of them, when they followed them up, they never got any symptoms. So it looks like there's this enormous clinical iceberg going on with this virus where a very significant number of people have no symptoms at all. And it's just the tip of the iceberg people who do have symptoms. But what we don't know is, how do you segregate or how do you break down the who's giving it to who? Are the asymptomatic people as good at giving it to other people as the symptomatic ones? Wouldn't that be possible to work out? 
Yes, although it's difficult because if you don't, if someone's not symptomatic and you don't know who they are, they've got no symptoms. You've you've got to go and then follow them and find them, and then start to follow up whether they appear to have contact with people and have given it to people. Now, this is where these apps that various countries are now introducing, and the other big news for us here in the UK is we finally have a working app introduced this week to enormous fanfare after a number of false starts, and. This may enable us to trace some of those cases. The problem is that it will only only really report if people trigger a test for themselves and they only trigger a test if they've got certain symptoms. So it's very difficult to get a handle on this asymptomatic spread question and to what extent that's playing a role in the spread. I think it almost certainly is playing a role, but the extent to which it's playing a role, we, we don't know yet. So you don't have random testing in the UK, you only have people who are symptomatic who are tested? There are a number of things going on. There are reactive tests when people have symptoms. The trigger points for getting tested are, have you got a new continuous cough? And by by that we mean if you've got a smoker's cough that you have day to day, that's not a a new onset continuous cough, so you you wouldn't trigger a test with that. Have you got a, a new abrupt onset fever? Have you lost your sense of smell and taste? And and that, that holy trinity of symptoms, if you have one or more of those, means you can request a test. But there are also other studies that are going on, like the one I mentioned by the Office for National Statistics, and they are doing sentinel studies. I and mean, the idea of a sentinel study, it's a bit like the canary in the coal mine. What you do is rather than pursue active cases, you choose a sample of people who are in theory, representative of the population as a whole. And you regularly scrutinise them and you test them. And this gives you an insight into, because you generally choose a big group of people, tens of thousands if you can, and you can extrapolate them across the population. So you then get some idea as to what is really going on at grassroots level. And that's where this interesting data concerning asymptomatic carriage emerged from and also gives us indications about that the real kind of undercurrent of of spread through the country because of course one other criticism with this is because people are saying well the numbers are going up because we're testing a lot more the number of tests that are being done is nearly a quarter of a million tests a day going through now which is you know it's one of the highest testing rates in the world that's that's being delivered here now huge so are we seeing big numbers just because we're becoming exceptionally good at testing that doesn't appear that appear to be the case because what these sentinel studies showed is that they weren't detecting anything they weren't detecting anything and then suddenly september comes and they start making detections let's talk about the testing there have been a couple of developments in queensland it's reported that scientists are on the verge of a breakthrough a test that can detect whether someone is infected and contagious within moments and of course the implications of that is that normal activities travel would be able to be undertaken. Um, do you know any further d- details about that? Yeah, obviously there's enormous pressure on testing because the testing that's being done at the moment, by and large, is testing that uses PCR, the polymerase chain reaction, to look for the genetic information of the virus. This requires specialist laboratory equipment and there are a number of ways of doing it. There are point-of-care tests in some hospitals, including the one I work in, which will do this in 90 minutes, but it's still 90 minutes. Most of the track and trace and and laboratory-based sampling measures, though, are taking two days to get results back to people. This is completely impractical if you either want to admit someone to hospital, take a child to nursery, go and see your favourite band play. You want an answer much more quickly than that. So some, some important 
headlines have been emerging now around people who react or are reacting to this this need and uh, one case this this week for example uh, two two companies one in America one in South Korea have launched a new antigen test and they're actually looking for the physical coat of the virus which uh, you can pick up on a swab from the nose and throat and this thing works as a, a, an assay a linear flow assay a bit like a pregnancy test and gives results in minutes and uh, and apparently it's very what good. What about saliva, Chris? Yeah. Can you do tests on saliva reliably now? Y- yes, and I was actually talking to a gentleman from the UK who's also built a test that works in 15 minutes using PCR, actually, and gives a result very, very quickly, and he thinks that saliva is even better than the swab that we're doing from noses and throats at the moment, partly because it's so easy to obtain. It's so easy to obtain quickly and uh, seems to be a pretty sensitive uh, thing to test. So, yes, people are beginning to go down the route of you sort of swish something around in your mouth and then spit into a pot and use that because the, the virus is growing in the nose and throat. So if there's any there, it ought to be washoutable in saliva. So people are increasingly beginning to test saliva as well. So why don't we do it? Uh, well, the thing with these tests is that it's they're new kids on the biological block, and it takes time to get to get tests and get test procedures to be approved and validated. It's all very well saying I've got this miraculous new method. Look, it appears to work really well. You have to make sure it's been properly validated, and that means you run it against a gold standard test in a, in an approved laboratory using approved testing, and you demonstrate that it performs at least as well, if not better, than the existing technology. And then you know you have confidence in your test. Otherwise, you, you don't know whether whether you're missing cases, whether you're over-calling and calling people positive because the implications of a false positive, especially when a country, if you take New Zealand as an example, you know, no cases or very low cases at any one time, the implications and impact of a false positive in a setting like that is absolutely huge. So you've got to make sure your tests aren't calling people positive when they're not, and equally you need to make sure you're not missing cases. So this is a a very fine art that takes years to develop normally, so it's important that they get this right, and to get it right takes time. But in the meantime, the World Health Organisation is saying that millions of rapid diagnostic tests will be made available to countries where lab facilities and health workers are in short supply, easy to use, fast results and detect specific proteins or antigens as opposed to the PCR test. Well, that, this is, I spoke to actually um, Rob Matiru, who is one of the directors at Unitaid. They work with the WHO. They're an agency that purchase on behalf of the WHO. And they have secured 120 million of these tests for low and middle income countries so that they don't end up with the supply being exhausted before these countries are able to gain access to them because they recognise that, as Melinda Gates you know, famously said, if there's COVID anywhere, there is COVID everywhere. So we've got a global problem here. We need a global solution. We've got to crack this nut worldwide. It's no good in just focusing on one country because that country can't do what it would like to do if the rest of the world still imperiled by coronavirus so we need to solve the problem for everybody all at once and so these sorts of tests are regarded as as part and parcel of doing that and that's what Unitaid have, have been able to secure supplies from Abbott and a South Korean supplier to, to get these tests made available in, in lower to middle income countries as well as richer countries so that we can do rapid diagnostics and, and hopefully stem the, the the tide of infections. Tell me this I see in in um, Florida at the Tampa International Airport, um, 
It claims it's the first in the country, the first airport in the country in the US to offer PCR tests and rapid antigen tests to all flyers, um, arriving or departing flyers. And the PCR test will cost 125 bucks and the antigen test will cost 57 bucks. And the PCR will take 40 hours, 48 hours to develop and the antigen test 15 minutes. But unless everybody does it, what's the point? This point has been made as well because the boss of Heathrow Airport, the world's busiest airport, which is currently operating at something like 10% of its normal level of activity, has said, well, why can't we just test people flying in, flying out? Why don't we just have some tests here? We'll pay for them because at the moment we're going to go bust if we don't have people using our airport. So it's a small price to pay. We'll just test people. And it turns out it's not quite as simple as just testing people for the simple reason that the virus has an incubation period. And if you pick it up on the way to the airport, you're going to test negative, but you're still infected and still a potential threat in your onward destination. And so you'd have to have another test. Well, what are we going to do in the time between the two tests then? You can't really go about your business because you haven't been given a clean bill of health. So there's still a period of quarantine. And there has to be some kind of agreement internationally as to will New Zealand, will will Auckland Airport accept Heathrow Airport's test and vice versa. And aligning all these things is proving to be something of a headache. So it's not as simple as saying we'll just test everyone. I think that will probably help a bit. It will find some cases, especially when the, the virus is very common. But once you're down at the level, again, of it's, it's rare. Once you've got the levels right down, if you do this, the impact of a false positive becomes really very serious. Because if you call someone positive and they're not, you jeopardise their flight, you jeopardise all their onward business and all the other passengers who've been in contact with them might now be infected so they might have to isolate as well so you've got to be really careful about how you do this and it turns out it's quite a can of worms uh on the vaccine front the president of the australian medical association has said that despite all the trials going on a vaccine becoming available next year is unlikely Mm. Would you agree with that? Well, I, uh, in the wake of what happened with the AstraZeneca trial, because that was temporarily halted when a patient got transverse myelitis, which is an inflammation in the spinal cord, I went to talk mm-hmm. to an individual who uh, I know quite well, who is a world-class vaccinologist and has brought to market a number of vaccines in a number of poorer countries uh, very successfully. And this person told me that they've actually been asked by a regulator to have oversight of that particular vaccine. And they said that the evidence that they're seeing in front of them is that they're not going to have the boxes ticked, the safety data, everything ready to go until at least the middle of next year for that vaccine. I then spoke to somebody who's in the banking sector but is having conversations with another pharmaceutical company, a very significant international player who are at the forefront also of another rival vaccine to the Oxford AstraZeneca one, they were giving similar datelines. So they're saying at least midway through next year before they're in a position really to go at scale, you know, and that's at the earliest. And that's assuming there are no hitches, no glitches and everything works. So it looks like we may have another nine months of this yet before we're we're even in a position with the best best will in the world to have a vaccine, which is what's provoking people to say is this the right strategy to keep on locking down countries and, and costing a fortune, bankrupting economies? Maybe we need a rethink, and people are increasingly beginning to have that conversation. Um, a quick 
thought about Neanderthal genes. <laughs> yeah. There was a story about there's 16% of Europeans and something like 50% of South Asians have Neanderthal genes on account of, you know, way back getting together. Um, they worsen COVID-19, it is reported. Is the veracity to that report and why would that be the case? Yeah, there is, there is this claim. People have looked at the genomes of individuals from various geographies and different people in different parts of the world have different amounts of Neanderthal in them. This is, we think, simply because where did anatomically modern humans come from? They came out of Africa. They probably left the, the date that people think at the moment is about 50 or 60,000 years ago. It, it's, it's a bit blurry and they may well have left more than once and come back again. But anatomically modern humans, us, let's say they leave 50, 60,000 years ago and they then populate across the Earth's surface. Neanderthals were already out doing their thing. They, they span off from the evolutionary timeline hundreds of thousands of years before all of this. So they were already out doing their thing. They encountered anatomically modern humans. They were across Europe at the time, way back until about 20,000, 30,000 years ago when Neanderthals finally disappeared. And it's clear now, based on our genetic analysis, that those Neanderthals and anatomically modern humans of the time were definitely interbreeding. So that means that populations derived from European populations carry an element of Neanderthal DNA in them. And it, and it ranges because obviously that there are gene founder effects as where there was more of this interbreeding going on and then those populations founded more populations. There's more of that in the gene pool, others less. And the proportions range from lower numbers to high numbers. And if you look at the, the migration patterns, Bangladeshis, for example, people across that part of Asia have quite a high representation of these Neanderthal genes. They also tend to be at higher risk of coronavirus. And it's suggested that it may increase your risk of maybe double, depending if you have some of these genes. And we don't know exactly why. We do know it's to do with how the immune system works. And it may well therefore be that these individuals evolved to have those particular factors because they were very useful to them when they first left Africa but they become less useful when you start to encounter the sorts of diseases that we now do. And uh, at the moment, it's, it's still being investigated, but it seems to be a legacy effect of, of what works advantageously on, one, on the one hand. In different circumstances, can be a disadvantage. More information coming out week by week. Thank you, Chris. Dr Chris Smith, virologist.